0: Chapter 1 and verses 13 through 22, Queen Vashti deposed is what I've entitled uh, the message here. And we note that the theme here is God's providential care for his people. And uh, chapter 1 is kind of setting everything up for where it's going to go. Queen uh, Vashti says, hi, it's good to see you tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's great. Wish everybody was that friendly. So, uh, yeah, chapter one, Queen Vashti deposed. You know, Esther's kind of a strange book in the Bible. God's not mentioned anywhere in the book. And the people are really kind of out of the will of God. and uh, And yet it's amazing. Even in spite of all of that, God's handiwork is everywhere to be seen in the book. Uh, So we really kind of have a a look behind the curtain to see the providential hand of God at work on behalf of his people, even when they're out of the way. Now, God's name is not mentioned, as I said, but yet his fingerprints are all over what is happening. I love this verse from the book of Proverbs uh, 20, verse 24. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? You know, there's a lot of things in life, there's a lot of twists and turns, and it's like, where is this going? A lot of things are kind of hard to comprehend sometimes, right? I mean, we have that kind of situation in life. Uh, But God knows where He's taking us. Uh, He is sovereign over our course. There's a lot of things in life that we have no idea how to make sense of, and the trajectory of life is complex. Often there are things that seem like, you might say, from the world's perspective, bad luck, had a patch of bad luck, or good luck. But in truth, there is no luck. Uh, There is God and His providential care of His people. There's a bigger picture than we sometimes realize where God is providentially weaving together all of these little details for His glory and the good of His people. And often it happens a way we would never choose nor devise. You have this happen to you where some hard things come into your life and you say, boy, you look back and say, I would never choose that for myself, but it was good for me. You have that happen? Well, I thought I was the only one there for a moment. No, 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 we, we do have that happen. Well, the main players in the book of Esther had no idea I mean, these are pagans, and God is moving them around to work out his providential plan here. They had no idea how God was using them, or what end was in view. They're just living life, and yet, and yet God had a, a bigger plan. The moral of the story is that this really is God's story, and he is always the key character in view, even when he's not named as we have in the book of Esther. So you got a whole book, and and God's not even named. Where is he? Well, he just happens to be everywhere, providentially. It is fitting that God is really not named in Esther, as I say, because the people who remained in the land were really living in disobedience. They should have gone back to the promised land. The land of Israel and the people of Israel really are like body and soul. They belong together. Uh, They're really always kind of out of where God's best for them is when they're out of the land. And yet God proved himself to be faithful. Not really because of them, but because in spite of them. The story here in Esther begins after the time of the Babylonian captivity. They have come home, a remnant of them have come home after the Babylonian captivity after a remnant of the Jews had returned back to the land and after the rebuilding of the second temple. So the second temple has already been built. But many of the Jews, as I say, in disobedience, in effect, remained in Persia, perhaps kind of comfortable and kind of settled settled in uh, among the Gentiles of the world there. Well, in that context, in about 483 BC, the king of Persia, by the name of Ahasuerus, gave a really big six-month party for all his officials and nobles and topped it off with a one-week finale for all the people in the capital city of Shushan, also known as Susa. Not Susan, but Susa. Now, on the final day of this ultimate party, if you will, the king was feeling merry because of wine That's what it says in chapter 1, verse 10, specifically. And so he decided, somehow it struck him as a really great idea, to command, not to ask, but to command his beautiful wife, Queen Vashti, to come and show herself off to him and all of his imbibed friends. Well, she didn't think that was such a great idea. In fact, she refused to come, disobeyed the king's command. And the king became exceedingly angry. I mean, you have to understand, this is the Persian king who rules over 127 provinces. And his wife is this obeying his command. I mean, you talk about making a guy look bad. That's it. Well, tonight we pick up the narrative in chapter 1, verse 13. Esther, chapter 1, verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Adamatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsina, Memucan, the seven princes of Persia, and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting to me here, the king's got a problem, and so what's he doing? He calls for these wise men, and it says... A little in parenthesis here. Uh, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. Whenever he faced something difficult, he would call for some, for some input. Uh, maybe he should have done this just with his wife. You know? Honestly, when I'm grappling with some, something, the first person I'm going to talk to, if I'm really grappling with, with something, is my wife. Well, it's like, he didn't include her at all. He's just commanding her. But now in this situation, when it becomes a problem, now he's calling in all these wise men. Uh, interestingly, the king, for being such a brilliant leader, did not know what to do about the defiance of his wife. And so he called for his highest-ranking wise men uh, to give him counsel. It says they were wise men who understood the times. I don't think they understood the women, but they did understand the times, it says. Uh, Some have taken this to mean they were astrologers. You'll find this in the commentaries pretty regular. But uh, I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible may be onto something when it says, however, the answer from these wise men does not mention the stars or the zodiac, more likely the references to those who understood the times is like the usage in First Chronicles twelve thirty two, in which the men of Issachar understood the times. So I think the sense here is that these were very wise men who knew the intricacies of what's going on in that culture. Uh, they knew about law and justice, but they also knew about politics and culture and how to handle yourself wisely in this, in this uh, context. Seven of those in, in the category of wise men are mentioned here, and they are mentioned as being those closest to the king. So this was his inner cabinet, uh, those who were his most trusted advisors. Verse 15, here's the problem. What shall we do to Queen Vashti? According to the law. We're looking for a legal answer here. Again, maybe there's a better way to go than a legal answer here, but but that's what we're talking about here. Uh, What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs, which we do. Now, obviously, the king here did not have a very personal relationship with Queen Vashti. Even though she had the title queen, uh, she was only one of the king's women In his harem, as we see in chapter 2, verse 3, he had a whole harem uh, of women. So uh, even though she was kind of like the chief one, his chief wife, if you will, uh, there was lots of other women in his life, which maybe explains things just a little bit. He showed no real concern or respect for her personhood, as noted in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, as we saw last time. He was just the king who ordered people around, including Vashti. That's not a very good marriage when you have that kind of a situation. Also note that when Esther became queen, in chapter 4, verse 11, she says, quote, that she had not been called to go to the king these 30 days. In other words, it'd been a whole month since she'd seen the king. Boy, that's, uh, unless, I mean, you have situations where you might be separated, you know, for a month, but... This seems like it's a really abnormal type marriage, for sure. And all of this shows that the king did not have a very close relationship with the queen, even if she was his number one wife. She was largely, it seems, a trophy wife, used for his pleasure when he felt like it. I don't know about you, but I don't think I want my daughter, by the way, applying for a job like this, you know. I mean, Esther's, you know, applying for this job, and it's interesting how we even applied for the job and, and all of this stuff. Again, these people are not really where they should be in, in league with these, the pagan context here. Remember, this is a people, uh, th- that is the Jewish people, out of the will of God, really, whom God is working with faithfully in spite of themselves and not because of them so much. Now the question before the king's counselors was what to do with Vashti since she dared to disobey his orders. I mean, he is the king. What are we going to do about this? Well, one of these counselors has an idea. Verse sixteen, and Memucan answered before the king and the princes. Queen Vashti is not only wrong the king but also all the princes. You know, all of us uh, who are princes here and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So Manuchan comes off like, well, to me, comes off like the ultimate suck-up type guy. Uh, He he really overstates the case in a politically correct fashion. I think kind of uh, making the king look good in a sense, like, boy, what she has done is really horrible. Not only you, but all of us uh, who are in positions here, and in fact, all the people in the kingdom. Instead of reasoning with the king that perhaps it was foolish to command his beautiful wife, who we find out later historically was pregnant with his child. Maybe that had something to do with it. Who knows? But uh, perhaps it was foolish to command his beautiful wife to perform before a bunch of drunken men. Instead of going that route and saying, you know what, let's just back this off a little bit here. No, uh, he proceeds to spell out that the queen had, in fact, wronged not only the king, but also everybody else in the kingdom. That's, that's pretty big, you know, simply not obeying, not, not coming and showing yourself off to this bunch of men who've been drinking all week. Now, that, that is so serious, it's offended everybody in the entire kingdom. The king in uh, this man's mind, uh, Menukin's mind, clearly did no wrong. This was all Vashti's problem. And by the way, political correctness always protects the king, even when it's uh, patently false, even when the king's wearing no clothes. We say, beautiful attire. That's what we got going here. And here is why he said what Vashti did was so terrible. Verse 17 for the queen, the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report. King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. The, the ramifications of this are going to be terrible, he says. Uh, all the women are going to rebel against their husbands and despise their husbands. So his concern is... That when word of Vashti's disobedience gets out, there's going to be kind of a feminist uprising throughout the kingdom. And it's not going to be good for the husbands. If the queen can get away with this, there's going to be problems for everybody. This was his thinking. And therefore, his counsel is, we must put some damage control into place. Legal damage control. Let's, Let's make some laws. Verse 18. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. So he said, there's going to be some some major fallout here. This is not going to be good. And here he kind of zeroes in on the king's officials. Who might that be? Well, that would be people like him. People like him. He said, when I go home, I'm going to have some problems. (laughs) And he comes off like quite a talker. He really embellished this. Uh, and his concern is that the wives of the, of the nobles uh, this very day will hear about this. And the result will be excessive contempt and, and discord or wrath. So this is going to cause havoc in the homes of all the nobles. J. Vernon McGee says, this man, Menucan, is one of the princes you see. He says, I will have a fight over this matter when I go home. In fact, I think he came to the conclusion that if something was not done, he would not go home. <laughs> Who knows? Perhaps McGee's on to something here. Indeed, after all, uh, Menucan was one of the princes. And his wife was probably one of those he's talking about. And perhaps she was quite close to the, the Queen Vashti. As you remember, Vashti had a, uh, had a little celebration going too with all the women. Who knows? Certainly he sees trouble for the king's officials if something is not done. And so, and so he makes this suggestion, verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. That Vashti shall come no more before the king Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So he calls for a royal decree to be made that cannot be altered, which would permanently ban Vashti from any access to the king. Since she won't come, we're going to put it in law, a law that cannot be altered, that she can never have access to the king again. This, in effect, would serve as a divorce. Uh, She refused the king's command to come, and therefore she would be forever banned from coming. She would be forever deposed from being the queen. Furthermore, the suggestion was that Vashti be replaced. Ah, we see a little bit of uh, providence coming into place here, as we will see. But uh, Vashti be replaced with another who is better than her. And in context, better than her probably means better behaved. Even though it's messy, uh, we do see the providential hand of God at work here because we know the end of the story. We know where this is ultimately going. As we read there in chapter 4, perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, God orchestrated these things to bring us to this point. And yet people are accountable in that whole process too. You Don't say, well, you know, people were doing sinful things and therefore it's, it's fine. No. It will be interesting when we uh, see the whole grand scheme of things all worked out. When we get to heaven, we know the whole story and all the pieces of the puzzle will then fit together perfectly in our understanding. The laws of the Persians and the Medes was considered to be unalterable. And this becomes an important feature in the development of the story. As the story progresses, uh, we're going to see the king makes a decree that all the Jews, in effect, be killed. Well, that's binding according to man, but God in his providential workings, it, there was a way that they got around that, as we will see it in our study, showing him to be absolutely sovereign overall, uh, even as he's using unsavory actors to carry out his plan and purposes in such a way that he is ultimately glorified. By the way, John Whitcomb says here, this appeal to the immutability of Persian laws was apparently to protect the princes from Vashti's revenge, revenge should she ever return to power. So they think these guys are kind of protecting themselves a little bit. If we uh, make a rule against Vashti, and somehow later she gets back in here, she's probably going to, if she can use her, whatever position she has, she's going to come down hard on us. So... That's kind of one of the thoughts there. Well, verse twenty continues: "When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small." Oh, yeah, this is this. We're going to wave a wand, uh, kind of a law wand, over the whole kingdom, and all the wives now are going to uh, uh, respect their husbands. But notice, he talks about this this uh, empire and how great it is. We noticed this last time, and it was great. Man, this, this Persian empire, 127 provinces. And of course, here's the capital. But man, it was one of the capitals. There was four capitals in the kingdom, actually, as we noted, but huge area. It'd be kind of hard to be humble if you have that kind of an empire. But uh, large empire. The reasoning in verse 20 gives evidence of having a little too much drink, maybe. Uh, who in their right mind thinks you can legislate all the wives honoring their husbands throughout this great empire simply on the basis of a decree? We're going to make a rule. We're going to make a law. It's going to be a law now that all wives honor their husbands. Uh, I, 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 okay, that's a great idea. Let's, let's legislate this. You know, sometimes people, I, I think legislators, it kind of goes to their head how much we can legislate And uh, this is a case. Obviously, you cannot legislate women respecting their husbands. Uh, It's totally unenforceable. Look at the size of this place. We're going to send out a a decree and and all the women of this whole kingdom are now going to honor their husbands. Really? Again, I think this is kind of what happens when you are in a power center and it kind of goes to your head a little bit. You think you can make things happen that really are impossible. Forced obedience is really not the stuff of true love. As the old saying goes, a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. Uh, You simply can't force or legislate honor in the home. You can't do that. Now, it's interesting how God works in the New Testament. You know, the husbands are told to love their wives and the wives are told to submit to their husbands. But it's really, this is coming from God. God is the one who's orchestrating this. And there's some major irony here. Here the king is making this universal decree to control all the women of his empire when in fact he couldn't even control his own wife. Oh, the irony. Let me make a decree for for everybody else in the kingdom. I I can't bring it about, but (laughs) I'm going to make a law and now it's going to just de facto be in place. By the way, there's a lot of political leaders who want to run the whole country who, in fact, are clueless on a personal level. You got that kind going here. And it is amazing the insanity that passes for leadership sometimes. It really is. I often think about Daniel 4.17 in this light. Uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful leader and he thought he was all that, but then God reduced him to eating grass, became a vegetation like overnight. Uh, so... Um, the decision here, Daniel four seventeen. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. In order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever He will and sets o- sets over at the lowest of men. Isn't that interesting, sets over at the lowest of men. But He's sovereign. That's why we are to respect those in authority because God is still sovereign over what's happening. God is sovereign, and his providential hand guides all. Verse 21. So the reply pleased the king and the princes, and, and the king did according to the word of Menuchan. The whole group kind of applauded this council. Said, yeah, this is a good idea. And so the king did accordingly. Verse 22. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in, his, in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that every man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Now the language here is a little bit difficult in this verse, but it it seems that uh, they wanted every dialect dialect in the entire kingdom to get the message. And the message was clear, that each man should be master in his own house. That, That was clear. That last phrase, and speak in the language of his own people, may indicate that the man's native language be respected in the home. In an empire this large, there was lots of ethnically mixed marriages represented and lots of languages and dialects represented. Uh, The language that dominated the home was kind of reflective of who was in charge, evidently. And that seems to be the idea. And this law said that the husband is to be the master of his house, which was to be reflected in the language that was spoken in the home. Well, here's another ironic twist. Yes, the king had an issue with his wife, but this decree now sent out far and wide ensured that now everyone in the entire scope of his empire would know about it. Uh, If the goal was to save face for the king, I'm not sure this is a good plan. Everybody's going to know. But alas, we know the end of the story. It's bigger than the king. It's bigger than the queen. It's bigger than his officials. It ultimately has God's people in view and God's preservation of the Jewish people. Now, let's talk a little application here. It is true, biblically, that God has ordained that the husband be the head of the home. But he's not to be a dictator. Uh, What is missing in this story about legally forcing the women to honor their husbands and the man to be the master of the home What is missing here is love. Love. God has ordained the husband to be the head of the home, but the command to him is to lead in love. And that makes all the difference. Yes, the wife is to submit to the husband as unto the Lord, but the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And laws can't make this work. Only the Spirit can. You understand uh, Ephesians five, eighteen: Be not drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And out of that flows the instructions related to the marriage. The Spirit-filled life looks like the husband loving Christ as, lo- as Christ loved the church and the wife submitting to her husband as unto the Lord. This is a Spirit-filled context there. Uh, the world can never make this work right. This can only be accomplished by the Spirit. And the spirit of things really does make all the difference. Uh, notice Peter says, "Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding." Right there. How about a little understanding? Uh, be a good student of your wife. Uh, giving honor to the wife, as to the we- uh, the weaker vessel. She's like the fine china, not like those you know big old pots and pans you can throw around and you're not too careful. She's like the fine child. Treat her that way, with honor. As being heirs together of the grace of life. We're in this thing together. This is a partnership. This is not a dictatorship. It's a partnership, heirs together of the grace of life. And he says, you do this, that your prayers may not be hindered. You get on your high horse and you start not treating your wife right. Uh, God's not going to be happy with that. It's going to affect your prayer life. Well, the king didn't have a clue what God was doing. Neither did Vashti. Neither did the princess. And yet, as we look back and consider the whole story, we know where it was going. The providential hand of God was at work to bring deliverance to his people in a very unlikely fashion. Very unlikely. I love uh, the emphasis in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, it's the most philosophical book in the Bible. And here Solomon, in his own wisdom, is trying to figure out life. And I like what he figured out. You know what he figured out in Ecclesiastes? What he figured out is, you can't figure it out. Life is inscrutable in many ways. It is really amazing. God's ways are complex beyond figuring out. Uh, and that speaks to the greatness of God. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You can't really figure it all out. And then more in the middle of the book, Ecclesiastes 8.17. Then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out. The work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Can't really put it all together. And then at the end of the book, you say, boy, he's, he's going to change his mind, isn't he? No, he's not. Ecclesiastes eleven five. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. There's a lot of things we just don't know. And yet, God is sovereign. His providential hand takes care of his own. What we know is what we've been told, and no one ever figures out the ways and the plan of God on their own. He providentially leads us along in a way beyond what we can fully comprehend. And yet, God wants us to know that he is in control. And he has a purpose in all that happens. We love this promise, don't we? We don't always understand it, but we love it, right? We know. I mean, we know this. This is something we know. Lots of things we don't know, but we know that all things work together for good in the big scheme of things. To those who love God, it's not for everybody, by the way, the promise is to his own. Uh, To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God is working. Not everything is in and of itself good, but it's working together. It's serving a bigger picture purpose in the providential ways of God. I love this little poem by B.M. Franklin. It goes like this. It's called The Weaver. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaves so steadily. Oft he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride... Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God roll back the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Ah, that's a beautiful picture of sovereignty. Uh, The world is totally clueless. To the sovereign providential hand of God, but those who know him, who know the truth, know better. Indeed, life is but a weaving sown by the providential hand of God, and if you can see life that way, it'll help you in the dark times. Yah, he uses the dark threads as well as the threads of gold and gold and silver. He's weaving it together providentially for his sovereign purposes. And you can rest in that reality, and you will rest well indeed if you rest there. All right, let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close this in a word of prayer this evening.